We're grateful to have you as a listener, and we want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. We have a survey running right now and would love to hear from you. It shouldn't take much more than five minutes to complete. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. That's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. When you're done, you can enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. We really appreciate your help. Thanks so much. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Big economic news this week that adds to the growing concern that the United States is in a recession. And here to tell us if we are or aren't is Jeff Stein, Washington Post White House economics reporter. Jeff, welcome to First Look. Thanks so much for, ha- for having me on. Really appreciate it. Sure. So before we get into recession talk, we got to talk about this PCE number that um, was released this morning, just moments ago. Um, it is at 6.8%, which is the highest it's been since January of 1982. Here's my question. Well, actually, it's two. One, what is this PCE number and how does it differ from the 9.1% inflation number that captured headlines a month ago. Are these two different measures? Yeah, and, and it's a great question. I, I Unfortunately, I don't have all of the um, methodological differences right in front of me, but it's, it's so baffling to get this number today on the heels of the GDP report yesterday, which appeared to be showing what um, you know some people had been hoping for, which was the economy was slowing in some ways, Maybe the demand was falling out and we were going to start seeing a moderation of inflation. And then today, as you said, we get this PCE. PCE is just another measure of inflation. It, it sort of, unlike the CPI, it strips out, um, is my understanding, fuel, and um, which is very volatile. So the idea is to look at sort of things that aren't just very variable and, and focus on um, things that m- might you know more clearly track the underlying things that are happening in the economy. And with the PCE report, showing huge, you know, a very high number, as you just said, 6%, it seems to push in the other direction from this question about, um, you know, from the GDP report we got yesterday, which was suggesting a slowdown. So this economy has been just so baffling for economists and others for so long. And today, after months and months of this, we are still being confounded by these data. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and some of the charts I've seen, you know, fuel is up 43%. And these numbers are year year over year. And so let's talk about um, the GDP numbers because uh, as you said, they were released yesterday. They show the economy shrank for a second straight quarter, um, which meets the technical definition of an economy in recession. And I want want to play for everyone um, how President Biden reacted to the news yesterday. There's gonna be a lot of chatter today on Wall Street and among pundits about whether we are in a recession. But if you look at our job market, consumer spending, business investment, we see signs of economic progress in the second quarter as well. So, so Jeff, then, I mean, the president obviously is gonna rah-rah the economy, but are we in a recession? So this has been consuming, you know, a lot of the newsroom's time, this this question. And obviously, at some level, it's kind of just a semantic game, right? Like what we call the recession doesn't really matter that much for what people are feeling and what they're experiencing in the, in the economy. The White House has launched this all-out push, um, Biden, Secretary Yellen, the head of the White House National Economic Council, to say, 
a recession is defined by the sort of the nerds at the NBER, these eggheads who come up with the technical definition. And the White House is accurately pointing out that they look at a much broader set of definitions than just this question of two um, you know, negative quarters of GDP growth, which we have now. But these guys say, you know, we have to look at job numbers, we have to look at wages, and all of those other statistics are inconsistent with the definition of a recession. That said, this White House all-out push to, to redefine, to say that this is not a recession, which is maybe valid and maybe even worthwhile politically for them because of the negative blowback from headlines saying that we're in a recession that they may have successfully averted. We are still seeing a dramatic economic slowdown. Investment was down, um, which is normally a, you know, a sort of a leading indicator of where we're heading and maybe a sign that, that a recession is in the offing. Housing investment cratered by 14% or so um, in the last GDP report. That's a really scary sign. Business investment was also down. Consumption it was up a little bit, but slowing. So all of these signs are suggesting, you know, maybe we're not in a recession. And again, to give them credit, in the last four recessions that we've had, we've had more than, you know, I think it's 600,000 jobs lost. Over the same period in this year, we've had over a million jobs gained. So I understand why the White House is saying, this is not the kind of recession you're used to. That said, th things are slowing and it could lead in that direction. So their attempts to dismiss that could end up looking short-sighted in, in the long run. <laughs> I'm Sorry, that was a, because... a very long-winded answer to your question. No, 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 no. But I, it was a terrific answer, but I'm laughing because it just sort of highlights how just confounding this situation is, not just for the American consumer who's dealing with the high prices, but for economists who's, and economic reporters whose job it is to tell everyone, like, are we in it or are we not in it? So, so Jeff, the, the Fed chair, um, Jerome Powell, said his goal was to bring inflation down, which, okay, it's either 9.1% or 6.8%, no matter what, it's at 40-year highs. Um, without a, He wants to do that without a significant increase in unemployment, which is below 4%. And there are two job openings for every person who's looking for one for one job, but isn't the isn't the Fed chair's job, his task, the equivalent of trying to thread a needle in the middle of a hurricane? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really well put. Um, the White House is projecting over and over again the confidence, and the Fed is projecting the confidence that we can tamp down inflation without causing a recession, and. You know, a lot of the economists are extremely skeptical on both sides of the aisle that that is at all possible. There's one thing I want to zero in on that I think is critical to understanding what's happening here. Obviously, inflation is caused by an imbalance of supply and demand where you have greater demand uh, and supply is not able to keep up with it. What the Fed is doing right now by raising interest rates, taking money out of the economy, making borrowing more expensive is tamping down on demand. Yet what a lot of people are saying, what Treasury Secretary Yellen said yesterday, which I think is accurate, a huge part of the inflation spiral we're seeing, particularly this year relative to last year, is caused by the war in Ukraine, which has caused food and fuel and other commodity prices to, to skyrocket. And so you have this, this potential mismatch, right, where the Fed is desperately trying to reduce demand to get it in line with supply. And that's what, what they're working on. But so much of the inflationary shock is caused by supply chain issues, supply supply being taken offline. And so that raises the prospect that we could have the worst of both worlds, which is really scary, right? Supply continuing to not keep up with demand, but demand also falling in a way that hurts the, the gains that we've had, the job gains, the economic gains, the wage gains. 
So threading a needle for sure, but also trying to do it with, with you know, a hurricane in the middle of a war, in the middle of a pandemic as well. Yeah, um, the whole point of that analogy was to let everyone know um, that the Fed, the Fed and the Fed chair's job, it's hard. Um, Jeff, let's talk about something, maybe a, a little bit of good news here, um, especially good news for the Biden administration, and that is the deal struck between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin on what they are now calling the Inflation Reduction Act of ni- oh, 1922. <laughs> uh, this is your it feels like it's so been going on for that long, honestly. That's I know, right? I Right. So, so tell us. I was definitely will... when it started. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't even born. Okay. So, <laughs> what what will the final deal look like? The deal Schumer and Manchin reached really centers on a few key elements: healthcare, um, a reduction in pre- prescription drug costs, and an extension of Affordable Care Act subsidies, um, climate and energy policies primarily um, tax incentives for renewable energy production, but also tons of of homeowner credits. So money for buying an EV, money for retrofitting your your house, putting solar panels on your home, for insulating your home. So all all those things. And then the last big piece of it is the tax tax code um, changes, the biggest of which is a 15% minimum tax on corporations with over a billion dollars in annual profits, as well as $80 billion for the badly underfunded IRS which would bring in, even though it's $80 billion in spending for the IRS, it would bring in a net of $124 billion um, in new revenue because there's so much um, tax fraud going on right now. The administration says overwhelmingly, you know, among the richest 1%. Oh, well, um, we are completely out of time. I got to ask you one more thing and just um, give me a yes or no if, if you know the answer. Senator Kirsten Sinema, who is also... You know, someone folks have got to watch out for. Has she said anything about this deal? Is she a thumbs up or a thumbs down, or we don't know? Uh, no, thumbs sideways for sure. We don't we don't know. She's been very mum, and um, we'll have to find out what what her what her position is on the bill. She says she's reviewing right. it. Okay, Jeff Stein, Washington Post White House economics reporter. Thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much for having me, John. You too. All right, we're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, Josh Rogan and Jennifer Rubin. Welcome back to First Look. Great to be nice back. To be here. Um, okay, Jen, uh, President believes, doesn't believe we're in a recession. Some economists agree with him. Unemployment is low. Job creation is so high. There are two jobs for every person looking for one. And yet the American consumer feels feels pinched, especially at the at the at the pump. How can the administration acknowledge public pain without down talking the economy that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? It's a really good question. I was actually over um, at the old executive uh, building yesterday when uh, they had this news plus the news of the Mansion Schumer uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which they're now calling it. And I think what they're trying to do is simultaneously project optimism about the future, but concede people are feeling pain in the short term and stress the things that they are trying to do in the short term to alleviate that pain. 
And just in the nick of time, um, in comes Joe Manchin with a bill that would cap and um, hopefully reduce um, the uh, rising cost of prescription drugs, which is a good thing. That's going to ease the transition to clean energy, give a bunch of credits and other inducements um, to transition away from fossil fuels, also a good thing, and also raise some taxes from big corporations, which they can then use to plow back into what they call investments in education, in infrastructure, in new jobs. They also got a break this week because they passed the semiconductor bill, and that's going to uh, create a bunch of jobs, um, hopefully in the heartland of the country. So what they're doing is this very delicate dance of saying, yes, we understand the pain, but look at these things we're doing. And in the medium term, we're optimistic. And they're trying to, I think, um, project um, that the uh, landing, as they call it, from the Fed um, in a hurricane, as you put it, um, will be soft-ish, is how they put it. Um, I think they realize that they're not going to get away with no pain, but they hope that it's relatively painless. Right. I mean, the whole point of raising interest rates is to apply a little bit of pain to keep people from from spending and hopefully bringing bringing prices down. But, Josh, when it comes to inflation, we got this brand new um, inflation number different from the nine point one percent. Oh, and, you know, actually, I see that Josh is frozen. So we're going <laughs> to Jan, I'm going to throw this question to you while we figure out what's going on with with Josh. Um, so. When it comes to when it comes to inflation, one of the things the administration and economists point out is that inflation is a global issue, um, with the United States actually faring better than uh, than other nations, particularly uh, Western industrialized nations. But that's no comfort to the American consumer, I mean, is it, Jen? Oh, wait, it's really I heard, wait. Hold on, Jen. I said I, I think I heard Josh. Josh, hello. There he is. Did you did you hear the question, Josh? I did. I did. Sorry for those technical difficulties. Answer. That's quite uh, right. Yes. So you know, although it's very nice, as Jen said, that for the Biden administration that they got a couple of good economic headlines this week for a change. But you know, as she pointed out, all of those medium-term benefits, none of them are going to show up before voters go to the polls. And even though election is, uh, inflation rather is coming down a little bit, it's still coming down from a really high place and. You know, it's not as if inflation goes away. Those price hikes that people see in their everyday lives are are never going away. They're there forever. Okay, they're, and for the White House to go out and say, "Well, your life is going to get worse, just but a little bit slower now," is not a really good campaign ad. So I don't think the headlines are going to last until the election, and I don't think the benefits are going to come before the election. So we're going to have basically the same situation which we have now, which is a lot of people feeling a lot of pain and uh, no nothing that happened that this week is really going to make a big dent in that, in my opinion. Jen? Well, I think um, you can look at it um, a little bit differently, which is that they um, it's the direction of change. Um, they're very pleased that the gas uh, cost number is coming down. Um, and they are, I think, hopeful that um, consumers are going to keep spending, um, which they are, but at a lower rate. Um, and I think what they are trying to do, like any administration, is say, yes, we have these problems, but we're working on them. We're making progress. And for those people who, for example, um, were unemployed a year ago, don't have a big commute, um, they're probably doing, frankly, a little bit better. 
Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are not doing better. Um, perhaps they never lost their job. Now they have um, they're back full time working in the office, um, have a really long commute, are paying a ton for gas and their bottom line is worse. And that's why they keep pushing these other things that say we understand you're having difficulty paying your bills. We can't really solve the inflation problem, but we're gonna do these other things to try to mitigate that pain. Um, we're gonna release oil from the strategic reserve. We're going to try to control the price of prescription jugs. We're gonna try to give you an alternative um, to high fuel prices that you'll need to heat your home in the winter um, by helping you uh, convert to some clean energy choices. So it's a balancing act. Um, it's not easy. and. You know, I cannot stress enough, as you were saying um, with Jeff uh, earlier, that this is completely uncharted territory. The White House admits it. I think the Fed admits it. The, the numbers are all going like different ways. Um, and really, they have not dealt with something like this. Normally, you have high unemployment if you're going to have a recession. Normally, you don't have high inflation at the time that inventories are coming down, for example. So, you know, you have to have a little bit of sympathy for these people that this is just wacky stuff. This is a once in a generation kind of problem generated by a once in a lifetime pandemic. So, uh, frankly, they have their work cut out for them. Mm -hmm. and, and not to mention, uh, a, a war being waged on Ukraine by Russia, which is also impacting um, oil and, and gas supplies around the world. Let's talk about um, the situation um, between the United States and China. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi might might be going to Taiwan. She hasn't announced a, 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 uh, hasn't announced the trip yet, whether she's going or not. Um, and this has rankled the Chinese government. Josh, you tweeted this week that if the speaker makes that trip, the, govern the governments in Washington, Beijing, and Taipei will just have to accept it. Why? Right, well, Jonathan, I'm gonna break some news on your show right now. Uh, diplomatic sources confirm she is set to go, and it will be on the early side of her trip within the next few days. She's also going to Tokyo and Seoul, but the current plan, and again, until she lands, you know, things could change, but is is for, that she's going. And the Biden administration and the military are uh, making preparations to support that trip. And uh, their weeks-long effort, several weeks-long effort to convince her not to go uh, has failed. And the Chinese government's uh, bluster and threatening and uh, has also failed to deter her. Now, we don't know what they're going to do. You know, they have a range of options to respond. Uh, some of them could be provocative towards the United States. Some of them could be provocative towards Taiwan. Some of them could come after she leaves. So there's a lot of unknowns. But uh, basically what happened was uh, that uh, the Biden administration took this secret trip and uh, exposed it when President Biden on the tarmac confirmed it. And after that, Nancy Pelosi and her staff felt that they were backed into a corner and that they weren't about mm. to back down. So now the trip is on. Now, the reason I say that they're going to have to accept it is because, you know, we have a principle here, which is that Americans uh, can go to other democracies when they want. Okay. And dictatorships that are near those democracies can't tell you not to and punish you if you go. And that's been the principle this whole time. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't risks. I'm not saying that the Biden administration doesn't have to consider the geopolitical implications and this and that. Those are all valid arguments. But at the end of the day, 
uh, if Nancy Pelosi wants to go to Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi is going to go to Taiwan. For her, it's a capstone on a decades-long career in U.S.-China relations. She knows she's not going to be Speaker next year, probably, right? And she might not even be in Congress next year. So this is she sees this as her last chance. She sees this as a legacy item. Of course, the Biden administration doesn't care about Nancy Pelosi's legacy. They care about maintaining predictable and stable U.S.-China relations that are uh, in a world of rising tensions. And those two interests are against each other. And if you're from the Chinese side, you can't even believe that the president of the United States can't control Pelosi because in their right. system, the president kills or jails anyone who doesn't do what he says. But they don't understand that, like, in our system, actually, the president can't tell the Speaker of the House what to do, even if they're in right. the same party. And that's exactly what's the case right now. Right. And Josh, let's just be clear. Speaker Pelosi isn't doing something that is out of the ordinary for a House speaker. She will not will not be the first Speaker of the House to exactly. go to Taiwan. Not only that, uh, you know, the 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 point of having regular congressional delegations in, in, uh, go to Taiwan is to maintain a status quo where we uh, have a one China policy, which means that we recognize uh, Beijing's government as the government of China, but we have a robust diplomatic uh, unofficial ties with Taiwan. That's the policy. So it's not a change of the policy. Now, President Xi Jinping spoke to President Biden yesterday and complained about this and said, those who play with fire will get burned. That's what President Xi said. And that's a threat. Okay. And if you just think about that, well, maybe when the Chinese, this is my opinion, when the Chinese Communist Party tests our resolve, maybe the best thing to do is to show resolve. And that's Again, that's not to say there's no risk. That's not to say that the Chinese Communist Party won't do something reckless. They might. But that's on them, not on us, not on Nancy Pelosi. And now that she is going, as I've announced and broken the news here here live on your show for your viewers, uh, it's important, I think, for the Biden administration to pivot from leaking about the trip to supporting her because uh, that's, what, that's what's about to happen in the next coming days. And, and you anticipated a question I was going to ask you, but I'm not going to ask it. But it was about the fact that President Biden and President Xi spoke yesterday on the phone for two hours, which, you know, I can barely stand a conversation <laughs> on the phone for longer than two minutes. But for two, but for two world leaders to spend two hours on the phone like that is is very significant. Jen, I want to bring the conversation uh, back stateside and talk about uh, to other people who not directly are like this, but were like this in Washington um, for the first time since they left Washington at the end of the Trump-Pence administration. And I'm talking about both Donald Trump and Mike Pence being in town, giving um, different speeches. I want to start with um, um, Donald Trump's speech, because he gave a rather dark dystopian um, American carnage on steroids type speech. And in a column this week, Jen, you wrote, if Trump feels a tad claustrophobic, it's because the walls are closing in. What walls exactly, Jen? Well, he's got a bunch of them. Um, first of all, we got word that the Justice Department really is investigating him for possible criminal violations. Uh, many of us were concerned that the uh, Justice Department had gotten cold feet or were dragging their feet. And in fact, they're plunging ahead. The other big news was that um, both uh, 
uh, Vice President Pence's uh, head counsel, uh, Mr. Jacobs, and his chief of staff, Mark Short, went before a federal grand jury. Um, those people are going to tell the grand jury about the pressure campaign on their boss, and that is directly aimed at Donald Trump. That was part of the coup, a large part of the coup. So he has the grand jury to worry about. He has an increasing parade of cooperating witnesses. That is people who are willing to talk because um, it's getting a little hot in their neighborhood. So they'd like to strike a deal before they're on the target list. And of course, he has the January 6th committee, which frankly did uh, much better than many people expected in terms of getting out information and isn't done yet. It's going to come back uh, in August, most likely in September, um, and tell us more. Um, and on top of that, you then have a scandal where it appears that the Secret Service and now two high-ranking uh, officials in the Trump Department of Homeland Security um, somehow lost, destroyed um, emails, texts. Um, that's another um, lead for the Justice Department. Were they told to destroy them? Are they just super incompetent and coincidentally incompetent? Um, we're going to find out. Uh, but he has a lot of incoming um, at him. And although there's not been a breakthrough moment when the entire Republican Party throws up their hands and said, enough, we're done with him, um, you do sense that they're tired of this, that they're tired of him, they're tired of the drama, they would like to move on. And that's why, although they say they support him, you're seeing increasingly strong support for alternatives in 2024, like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. So I don't mm -hmm. think um, you're going to see a revolution in Trump thinking, but I think you're going to see a slow sap of support and enthusiasm for him. And that's, of course, as important to him as any of the legal implications right. uh, of the current investigations. You, you, you've come up with the phrase that I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to use myself, coincidentally incompetent. <laughs> yes. great. I got it. I got to get you on one, on one more thing. And this is the Mike Pence side, because on the same day that Trump spoke, um, Mike Pence also delivered a speech laying out what he called a freedom agenda and that he couldn't be more proud of the Trump-Pence record. Will this strategy of trying to chart a new path while, well, um, not still clinging to Trump's record as president work with Republican voters. I mean, I noticed you mentioned folks, Republicans looking at, say, Governor DeSantis, but you didn't say looking at former Vice President Mike Pence. Other than his blood relatives and employees, I'm at a loss to think of somebody who would be a Pence voter. Um, the party is either made up of people who have had it with the Trump years and really want to move on and understand that by and large Pence was um, attached at the hip to Trump, or they are people who are fanatical Trump supporters and say, Mike Pence betrayed him. We would have had the presidency still if not for him. So I think this entire presidential run is, um, frankly, um, if really ridiculous. Um, I think what he's actually trying to do is kind of restore his reputation and show that he was a smart conservative and a responsible conservative. But I think his chances of winning the presidency, winning the nomination, frankly, are very, very small. If the party wants to move on, they're not going to move on to Mike Pence. They're going to move on to somebody else. Well, <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, Josh Rogan, we are completely out of time. Um, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Oh, extra thank you, Josh, for breaking news 
on First Look. Uh, both of you have a great weekend. You, you too. too. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.